We're still in spiritual warfare. And even if when I quit teaching it, we will still be in it. Because spiritual warfare is never going to end. It will, it will always be with us. You and I, this is the horse gate in our... Have y'all forgotten that we're in the gates? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I've almost forgotten it myself, and the little picture of the gate reminds me. We have been in the gates, and in mean, another lesson or two, I'm going to kind of review where we are and how we got to the horse gate. But the horse gate is a symbol of spiritual warfare in our lives. We are at the church of Pergamos because Jesus Christ addresses this in every letter to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We know Pergamos is the church that was willing to compromise. They would not stand for the truth of God's word. And so what's wrong with Pergamos? They have no discernment because they're tolerating any and everything that comes into the church. And last week we looked at the doctrine of ba uh, Balaam, and today we're going to see the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, how many of you have heard of the Nicolaitans? A few. Did you understand what their doctrine was? Sort of. Okay, I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this lesson because I've really, I have a better understanding, I think, and a better grip on what it really is. So we want to look at this today, see how it was, it was affecting the people in the church of Pergamos, and it is still affecting people in the church today. It started here, and it will just continue. It continued. Now, if you and I go back to the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 6. Remember, this is the church of the apostolic age. This is the church that had Paul and James and John and Peter. So this was the age up until about 100 AD when John died. And in verse 6, it says, Yet this you have, talking to the church of Ephesus, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. And then Jesus says, I also hate it. So he's commending them that it was around, but they hate it. And they will not tolerate it. It will not be allowed to come into their church. They would not bear with this evil doctrine. If we look at the word hate in the Greek, it is meseo. And it means you hate something, you abhor it, you find it utterly repulsive. So this is a person, if you say you hate something, you have a deep-seated animosity, you are antagonistic to something that you find to be completely objectionable, you loathe it, and you reject it entirely. So hate is a strong word, is it not? And it says, Jesus hates the deeds and the works of the Nicolaitans. Well, if he hates something, am I also supposed to? Yes, but we need to know what it is he hates so we can also hate it. Now, no doubt the leaders in the church of uh, Ephesus, they were protecting their flock. Is that what a good shepherd is supposed to do? Protect the flock from the heresies that were trying to seep into the church and keep their people from committing the same evil deeds because Jesus says, don't let it in your church, I hate it. And so evidently, the preachers in Ephesus were doing a pretty good job because he said, you also hate it. 
Now we're going to fast forward, go past the church of Smyrgamus, go past the church of Smyrna, because Smyrna was the persecuted church, right? Okay, so we're going to move ahead to the church of Pergamus. We're now at about the year 313 to 590 AD. Are we still under Roman emperors? Yes. The problem is we now have a Roman emperor who wants everything in his empire to be baptized as Christian. Does it matter what the belief is? No. Will we tolerate everything? Yes. So now we have a problem. And so what the Ephesian people opposed, Pergamos now says, if you notice in verse 6, he said, I hate the deeds and the works. But now what's happened in Pergamos? You have a doctrine. It's now a doctrine in the church at Pergamos. And Jesus is calling them out on it. So what? They tolerate what Jesus hates. And I now have a doctrine about the Nicolaitans. So we're beginning to the letter uh, to the church at Pergamos. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he, and he's coming at this church with what? The double-edged sword. So is he coming in judgment? Absolutely. And he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell and I know that you're dwelling, you're living, you're abiding where Satan's throne is. That is a wicked town to be in. And then he goes on to say, but you're holding fast to my name, and you're not even denying my faith, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was a martyr and he was killed where Satan dwells. So they've been killing people like Antipas, but you held fast to my name, and you didn't deny my faith. And I know you're living where Satan is, his throne. Now, but I have a few things against you. He says, because you have in your church, let's think of this as the church, even though we're from all different churches, okay? You have in the church, you've got people that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, you and I looked at that last week, and that was where Balaam told King Balak, do whatever, cast a stumbling block, entice him to sin, and then God will bring the judgment on him. So you've got people in Pergamos that are holding to that. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. They're going to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Thus... Do you see the connecting word? It's a word like therefore. Because you have that, therefore, thus, you also have some people in there that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So that's his message to this church. You've got people that have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I hate it, and you've let it become a doctrine. So he is, not, he is very angry, and remember, he's going to come with a double-edged sword against him. Now, he says, repent. That means you change, you go a different way, turn, or else I'm going to come quickly to you. I'm going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You got an ear to hear? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now, 
The doctrine of Nicolaitans, do we know it's evil? It absolutely is. But listen to this. It's significant that the deeds, the works, and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, it's only mentioned in these two churches, and these are the two occultic and pagan churches of the seven. So where the paganism was in the occult, this is the, these are the churches that had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, in the city of Pergamos, there's dark and sinister forms of occultism. Remember the healing spa that they had where you go and you, snakes crawl over you at night? Okay, that's where this was. Now, they have very dark and sinister forms of occultism, and this caused Pergamos to be one of the most wicked cities in the history of the ancient world. They had many statues and temples and so forth to all kinds of gods and goddesses. For Christians in Pergamos, let's say you and I live there. Here is our constant problem, our constant temptation. They want me to compromise my Christian beliefs so I can be socially accepted, politically accepted, and I won't be ridiculed, I won't be cast out of society. I won't be set off over there because I won't conform to what they say. So is that a temptation for a Christian? If you were put in that bad of a situation, you live where Satan's throne is, the church is allowing all this in there, and you're trying to stand for truth. It's a very hard situation, is it not? Sometimes you would feel very alone. So Christians, if you refuse to adapt to the pagan society, there's going to be harsh ridicule and rejection at some points. You may be even ostracized from society. It might even cost you your life. So this is the atmosphere, and this rejection from society is setting the table. You don't want to be rejected from society. Are you, are you, are you going to compromise, or are you going to go out there and stand alone and be scoffed and ridiculed, scoffed at and ridiculed? So we're setting the table for the teaching of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to come into our church. It's a teaching which was a little bit of leaven, and it's going to get into the church, and it can destroy the church if it gets in and is taught. So they combine pagan practices. Remember, because we're living under Constantine, and everything is allowed, right? It doesn't matter what the belief is. All kinds of paganism has come into the church, and we're going to combine it with the teaching of God's Word. Well, is it going to water this down? make it extremely, extremely ineffective because we're going to replace the teachings of God's word with corrupt pagan deceptions and lies straight from the bowels of Satan the devil. There are many things being taught in churches that are straight from the pit of hell, but yet they're being taught. So the core of Christian people in Pergamos, they're holding fast to the name of the Lord and they're not wavering on who he is. They're not denying the faith. They're firm in the gospel. They believe it. But what's he saying? You are allowing it. You're tolerating it. You're dealing soft with error. The error's being taught in your church, either from the pulpit or from some teachers, and you are allowing it. That's what he's getting them onto. That's why he's getting onto them. 
It's because they tolerate it, and they're not standing up for it. So it seems Balaam's actions are given first. If you notice in the verse to, the church, to this church, the letter, does he mention Balaam first? Yeah, you understand what Balaam did, and now it's an example to keep to, so we will understand more what the doc, uh, doctrine of the Nicolaitans was about and the doctrine that they taught because we had that connecting word, thus. Now, thus you have them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and I hate it. Now, if you remember with Balaam, I'm going to review just a little bit because I thought this was real important. Balaam tried to curse the children of Israel, right? Would God let him? No, he would not let him. So that wasn't successful. So he came up with a plan to seduce them so that they would be into unbridled, sensual living by the prostitutes of Moab. Let's dangle those prostitutes out there. Can you imagine a bunch of men when a a big group of prostitutes are coming in, they're seductively dressed, and they're seducing the men? We know what will happen. And it happened to 24,000 of the men. Now, the second generation of Israelites, okay, let's pretend that's you and me. I have been traveling in the wilderness for about 38 years since the incident Kadesh Barnea. I have seen lots of people die, right? And they died because of unbelief and rebellion. Now, if I'm one of those people, I'm going to think, man, I don't want to rebel against God, and I want to believe everything he says because I know what happened to people that didn't. They've lived with it for 38 years. They've had manna and water with no exceptions, and they've seen all these people die, some of them probably their fathers, their grandfathers, or whatever, because of their rebellion and unbelief. Now, here I am approaching the Jordan River. Now, when I cross the Jordan River, what's over there on the other side? My inheritance, my promised land right? And so before we cross, God has, gives us two big victories out here. There are two big kings, size-wise, King Og and King Sihon. Now remember back at Kadesh Barnea when they went in, what did they see that frightened them? Giants. And they said, we can't do this. Ten of them did. So now we're over here. Here's two giants. And what does God say to them? I'm going to give you a victory. He gave him two big victories over these kings to encourage them that when you cross the Jordan and get over in your inheritance, I'm going to continue to fight for you. I'm going to give you victory no matter what. If you just put all of you surrender to me, let me lead. So I've had these, these things to encourage me. They're ready to cross the Jordan River. They're at their promised land. They've been waiting to go to the land flowing with milk and honey. And God's going to be their victor. He's going to give them victory over the Hittites and the Hivites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and all those ites. Now, you know that I believe this is a type of you and I surrendering to him and going into our inheritance, our spiritual promised land, 
And all of those enemies that we need to feed over, our fear, our anger, our root of bitterness, all of those things, will he give me victory over that? He will when I surrender to him, and I believe that's what the crossing of the Jordan symbolizes. I am going to step, did they have to step out by faith? Yes, because he didn't part the water first. They put their feet in, and then he did. So you step out by faith, and then it's, I die to myself. And I'm surrendering totally to you. And then when I start living my abundant life over here, I've got victory over roots of bitterness, jealousy, envy, temper. He's giving me victory. Bad circumstances come in. Will he give me victory? Yes, but he wants me surrendered to him and let the Holy Spirit give me the victory. And they're almost there. They're getting ready to cross over. And here's the map. And on the right side of the map, I have a little red box. This is Acacia Grove. And they have pitched their tents here. And the Bible's going to tell us they make a fatal mistake. Are we almost there in our promised land? And the Bible says in chapter 25, verse 1 of Numbers, they remained in Acacia Grove. There was their mistake. They chose to remain over here instead of crossing and surrender and living in their inheritance, their abundant life. You can see the Jordan River, the little blue squiggly line. And over on the other side by the little red balloon-looking thing is Gilgal. What did Gilgal represent? Oh, this is where we built the memorial. And we remember everything God did. He brought us here. He's been faithful. He's the one that parted the Jordan River. He's the one that's going to give us victory. And Joshua, who was their leader, every time he was in battle, where was Joshua? During the battle, before it and after, he's found at Gilgal. Because that's the place where you remember what God's done. But many of them are not ever going to get there because they remained in Acacia Grove. And I'm repeating this from last week because I thought this was really good. The word remained is yashab in Hebrew, and it means they're going to dwell, they're going to sit down, they're going to make this their abode, their dwelling place. Does that sound like they have any intention of leaving? No. In fact, Yashab is translated six times in the Old Testament, meaning marriage. I have united myself. I'm going to remain over here in Acacia Grove. It's not the same verb in Hebrew as to camp. Remember, they had been camping for 38 years. And every time they broke camp, they pack up their tent, they move a little ways, and they pitch it again. But were they always moving towards their inheritance? Yeah. But now they don't have that mindset. They don't have that pilgrim mindset anymore, and they're going to remain. So the Holy Spirit, when he's inspiring the writing uh, of Numbers, he doesn't use the word in this passage for their last stop before the crossing into the promised land. He uses remained, not camped. And they should have been camping. Because they would have had a pilgrim mindset. We're going to be here a little bit. Then we pitch up. We're going to cross the Jordan. And here's our inheritance. And we're going to live in that promised land. 
They should have camped, but they didn't. And they stayed over in Acacia Grove for a long time. And I want us to read what happened because they remained in Numbers 25, verse 1. They remained here, and the people began to commit harlotry. He's just given them two big victories. They've been waiting 38 years for this. They're committing harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. And Israel becomes joined to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord is aroused against them. Because the welcome wagon showed up. The enemy. The enemy shows up. Because they haven't moved on. And here comes the enemy when I'm headed to my inheritance. And what is the enemy always going to throw out in that trap for me? Something that appeals to the lust of my flesh. They knew what would appeal to a bulk of the men. There are things that could be put in the trap that would catch you and me. But the welcome wagon has shown up and Satan is going to use Balaam to set the trap. These friendly neighbors have come by. They want to welcome us to the neighborhood and extend an invitation. Y'all come to our worship feast. Just come on over. These are pagan people. They are the enemies. They do all kinds of things that would not be permitted for God's people. Now, did the Israelites realize, if I go share a meal with them, am I going to wind up worshiping their gods? They should have known that. The Canaanites incorporate sexual immorality into their religion. They had all kinds of orgies and feasts and temple uh, priestesses that were prostitutes and so forth. A lot of despicable things went on in their so-called act of worship. Now, the Israelites began to partake in all of this. Don't you know God's anger was aroused remember he comes to this church with a double-edged sword because of the doctrine of Balaam and he said God's judgment fell upon this people and he sends a plague which is going to kill 24,000 of the Israelites now we talked about this last week a stumbling block the word is scandalon And it's used to describe a trap, more specifically, the trigger of the trap. Now, we know, supposedly, if you put cheese on a a trap and the mouse goes after it, then it will get the mouse, right? That's what they say. This refers to a trap by which a person is drawn into error or sin. So, I want you all to look up here. This is not on the paper. Just kind of look at the graphics and just listen to my testimony here for a moment. You and I, when we are born again, are we not a new creation in Jesus Christ? Yes. So that new life is in me, right? And he wants me to live the abundant life, right? John 10.10, I came not only to give you life, I want to give you abundant life. 
And in the abundant life, it's like you and I going into our inheritance. They had a physical one. We have a spiritual one. And in this inheritance, will he give me victory over all the sin in my life and over my circumstances? That's what he promises. And I've got the new, I am the new creation and he wants me to live like the new creation, right? But it's his life that he lives in me and through me, right? So here I am, years ago, I'm telling you my story. Now, was something set as a trap to keep me from enjoying the abundant life? Yeah, y'all know my story. Okay, Satan knows the flavor of sin to bait your hook with. And it says, Satan, like a fisher, will bait his hook according to the appetite of the fish. He knows every one of you and me. And maybe you're born again, but you have not surrendered and you're not truly living the abundant life, walking in the Spirit, because Satan knows what kept you from it or is keeping you from it. Okay, now he's going to put something in the trap for me. He'll put something in the trap for you to stop you. Yes, I have. I'm born again. I have the life of Jesus in me. Then why in your circumstances are you a heap of mess on the floor? Why are you still dealing with uh, lust of your flesh, materialism? You're dealing with anger. You've got roots of bitterness. Why are you dealing with all of that? Because Satan has done something that kept us from truly living the abundant life. So I'm going to talk about me. Beware because Satan will bait his hook with whatever will entice you. And I know what he baited the hook for me with. Performance. Because as a little girl, I was always told, Francine, you can do anything you want. You just work hard. You achieve this. I was always a people pleaser going after the accolades of people. And so Satan knew that about me. And so instead of really surrendering so the abundant life could be in me, I was on this non-ending cycle of performance. I was in the church almost every time the door was open. Paul and I were doing all kinds of things in the church. We had our kids here. I was playing the piano. I mean, I was doing all kinds of stuff. But I was still dealing with roots of bitterness, anger, temper, all these things because Satan had me believing that all this activity that I'm doing for God working for God is going to make me more spiritual and that gives me the abundant life that is not true there is no abundant life when you are just doing all these things just because you think that's what you're supposed to be doing maybe you were a performer like I was you have something, and Satan knew what to get you off instead of full surrender to Jesus Christ at the dung gate on the potter's wheel. And he gets all of us off at times. But that's what happened to me. Performance. And I lived by that for so many years, and I got burned out. Because when you're doing it in the strength of your flesh, 
and you're still dealing with all this stuff and you don't understand why you can't have victory over all this stuff in your life, you get burned out. Well, there's a way not to be burned out. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Now I'm back on the paper. Now, in Second Peter he warned them. He said, there's going to be false teachers that will come into your area, into your church, and secretly introduce some kind of destructive heresy. And he says, they will deny the Lord who bought them, and they're going to bring swift destruction on themselves. That's exactly what happened to those men and the children of Israel. It brought swift destruction. So the Nicolaitans, the group teaching Baalism, really, it seems clear they were subjugating the people to Satan's authority. They're going to compromise God's word. It's going to neutralize the church, and it results in a weakened, powerless form of Christianity. If I am going after the doctrine of Baalism, or if I'm going after performance or anything else, I will not be, uh, I will have no power in my life to overcome anything. I'm just constantly living with it, frustrated. So the Nicolaitans are the group that, one thing, they're teaching Baalism. Now, if they do that, the church is going to lose its pilgrim perspective. And I'm not a pilgrim, I'm going to remain. I'm going to settle down right here where I am. And you adopt the viewpoint, the values, priorities, and pursuits of the world. Because I settle down, and I, you can get real satisfied being a carnal Christian. You can because you don't have to die to self, you can still do what you want. And you can become a carnal Christian. Paul addressed them in Corinthians, strongly, and again in Galatians. So we have two theories of who the Nicolaitans are and what are their deeds. We're gonna, I like both of the theories, so we're going to talk about both of them. Theory number one, the Nicolaitans are the followers of a false teacher in the early church named Nicholas. And he taught believers it's permissible to live a life of sexual immorality and fleshly indulgence. Well, let's see who Nicholas was. He says, in order to enjoy the acceptance of Roman society, you followers of Christ, you've got to compromise and adapt to these pagans. So he's teaching compromise. We've got to get along, right? Tolerate everything. The Nicolaitans campaigned accommodation to pagan society. It's okay if you eat food sacrificed to the idols, and you can engage in sexual immorality. Now, I'm going to use a lot of writings from early church leaders, well, writers. Irenaeus and Hippolytus. I had to practice so I didn't say Hippolytus. <laughs> Hippolytus. Okay. Irenaeus and Hippolytus were two leaders in the early church, and they recorded many of the events that occurred in the earliest recorded days of church history. So we're going to look at some of their writings. They said the Nicolaitans were the spiritual descendants of Nicholas of Antioch. He was a deacon in the church. Now, is that possible? Oh, yes. So let's look at the verse, Acts 6-5. The saying pleased the people. Remember, they're going to choose some deacons. The whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. Notice what the Holy Spirit says about him. He's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. There's the deacon you want. 
And then it lists some others, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. The Holy Spirit tells a little bit more about him. He's a proselyte of Antioch. He should never have been a deacon. What was the criteria? That they would be men of good reputation, that they would be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They're presented by the people to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. But those are the ones who were elected or chosen. If we look at a definition of a proselyte, he is born of non-Israelite lineage. So in that day, he was either Greek or Roman. They joined the Jews' religion by circumcision and obedience to the other requirements of the law of Moses. These proselytes to Judaism were the first non-Jewish converts in the church, and Nicholas is one of them. Now, it is written about him, he was not born a Jew, but he converted from paganism to Judaism. Then he experienced a second conversion later, and he turned away from Judaism to become a Christian into Christianity. Now, here's what one of the uh, authors uh, wrote about him. He came from paganism, and he had these deep pagan roots, very much like the other six deacons who came from the pure Hebrew line. This meant, if we look at his background, has he before been immersed in activities of the occult? Yes, he has been. He was not afraid of taking opposition. So if there's a discussion going on, he's not afraid to take the opposing opposition. Evidenced by his ability, he's changed religions twice since coming out of paganism. Now, converting to Judaism would have estranged him from his family. The pagan family would not have been happy and probably estranged him from them. So Barclay, who is a commentator, said, Nicholas was a free thinker. He's very open to embracing new ideas and concepts. Sometimes that's okay, but not always, right? Judaism was very different from the pagan and occult world in which he had been raised. For him to shift from paganism to Judaism reveals he's very liberal in his thinking because most pagans were offended by Judaism. They go on to say, Barclay does, he was obviously not afraid to entertain or embrace new ways of thinking. Something new comes on the scene, I'll go with it. When he converted to Christ, it was at least the second time he had converted from one religion to another. His ability to easily change, change religious hats, maybe depending on who you're with. He wasn't afraid to switch direction in midstream and go a totally different direction. And Barclay continues to say, his deep roots in paganism may have produced in him, I can just tolerate them. I used to be one of them. Y'all see that? Now, growing up in a perverted spiritual environment may have caused him to view these belief systems. You know, I'm okay. They're not so damaging. They're not so perverse. This wrong perception would have resulted in a liberal viewpoint that encouraged people to stay connected to the world and just conduct yourself any way you want to. 
So I'm going to have some writings from the early church fathers, and they say Nicholas was a proselyte like Balaam. He taught the, uh, Nicholas taught the doctrine of compromise like Balaam, implying you don't need to be totally separated between Christianity and the practice of occult paganism. It's not necessary. No, you can do both. Remember, we're under Constantine. Now, you needn't be so strict about separation from the world to be a Christian. Does that go against what this book says? Absolutely. It seems apparent Nicholas of Antioch was immersed. He's immersed in occultism, Judaism, and Christianity. He seemed to have a stomach for all of it. It's what one of the commentators said. He had no problem intermingling these belief systems in various concoctions, and he saw no reason why believers couldn't continue to fellowship. You know, we can go fellowship with all those that are still doing black magic and all those occults that were in the Roman Empire. So Tertullian of Carthage, who wrote many articles about defending Christianity, said of Nicholas, it was the lust and luxury of the Nicolaitans. They were impudent in uncleanness. And there was another sort of uh, Nicolaitans, a satanic set, that was called the Gaian heresy. Now, most of you know the worship of Mother Earth is Gaia worship. And in Romans 1.25, it said, They changed the truth of God to a lie. And they began to worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And that's what began to happen. I, I used this, uh, I don't know, it's maybe been three years ago. A, quote, church in California had a service, and some of the people dressed up as trees, and they were worshiping the trees, and they had a parade of the different kinds of trees coming through the so-called sanctuary. People start worshiping the creature, the creation, more than they do the creator. Now, Clement of Alexandria, he said, the followers of Nicholas are lascivious goats. Irenaeus, who was a bishop and defender of the faith, said they were men who lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. Ignatius of Antioch said, they affirm unlawful unions. It's okay, these unlawful unions. They're a good thing, and they place the highest happiness in pleasure. Now, Hippolytus, who wrote the refutation of all heresies, said... Nicholas departed from sound doctrine, and he taught the Gnostic belief of the irrelevance of physical things. They're not relevant. He said, uh, Clement and Irenaeus said, they consider Nicholas of Antioch to be the founder of the Gnostic set known as the Nicolaitans. And the last mention of him in the post-biblical historical record is in the context of syncretism, and we're not surprised. Syncretism, I take a little bit of the truth of God's word. I take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Throw in a little bit of men's philosophies and what the world says. I put it all into one big pot and stir it up, and that's my new theology. That's syncretism. Now, some other Bible scholars said the Nicolaitans are comparable to those following Baalism, which actually advocated a mingled lifestyle. 
They advocated an extreme indulgence in sin, uncleanness, immorality, and orgies based upon, here we're going to get to the crux of the matter, a perverted understanding of God's grace. You remember the word feigned words? Plastic. They twist. So they can twist everything to mean anything they want it to. And they're going to pervert God's grace. And it's an abuse of freedom. So they would say, you have freedom of the flesh, and the deeds of your flesh have no effect on the health of your soul. That is another lie. There are many things that you could do in your flesh that will be detrimental to the health of your soul. Therefore, they taught the deeds of the flesh have no relation to your salvation. See, so they are way off. And here, here's the problem. They have teachers, and there are preachers today and teachers, books, that will tell you that God's grace gives you a license to sin. It led to a weak version of Christianity without any power and without conviction. It's a defeated worldly type of Christianity. Grace giving me the license to sin. They're teaching the people to stumble. Balaam. Putting the trap out there. Setting it. Teach the people to stumble and go ahead and sin against God because they twist and they twist the teaching of the message of grace. This would result in nothing but total defeat for the followers. If I allow sin and compromise in my life, it drains away the power of the Holy Spirit in me. Because as I, if I continue to sin and say, it's okay, God's grace will forgive me, what am I doing to my vessel? I am clogging it up bad. And he needs clean vessels. We need to get on that potter's wheel and make sure we're yielded to him and let him clean our vessel. He can't really use, and he doesn't have much control over a vessel that's all clogged up. And that's what they were teaching. It's okay. They didn't say if you get all clogged up, but that's essentially what they're saying. So Paul dealt with false brethren unawares that were brought in. And they promoted a different but equally dangerous error, and it turns the grace of God, and now you're bound to legalism. Oh boy, I, I understand that. You do this, you do this, this is what a Christian's supposed to do. You can get, you can be very legalistic trying to be a good Christian. And that's, that happened to me many years ago get into legalism and then you'd feel guilty if you didn't do everything oh I have to read this and check my box off I have to do this I have to do this I have to do this this is what I'm supposed to be doing that that's putting you in bondage to legalism and a set of rules now Paul warned them against turning God's grace to legalism he said in Galatians 1 this is a verse that hit me a long time ago he said, I am amazed. In other words, I'm astonished. I just cannot believe it. That you are so quickly deserting him, turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ, and you're going after a different gospel. Oh, by the way, it's not really a gospel at all. 
But there are some that trouble you and they want to pervert the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ and transform it into something of an opposite character. And they were trying to make them see that grace was by works. Now, some were trying to add law requirements to the good news of God's grace. This attempt to turn grace into a performance standard is described as a perversion, a grievous twisting of God's grace. He said, brethren, in Galatians 5, you've been called to freedom. Do we have liberty in Christ? We have freedom in Christ. He says, he gives a warning though. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for your flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what we are called to do. God's true children ought to live according to that new nature that's in me. He's given it to every one of us. But Paul argued, in Christ Jesus, there's neither circumcision availing anything nor uncircumcision, but it's that new life in you. You are a new creature. It's not if you have all these external things that they were demanding. Do you have that new life in you? Now, so the truth is, whether it's a license to sin or binding you up with legalism, both undermine the actual grace of our God. Both of them do. Now, if he can pervert your concept of grace, which is what happened to me, if he can get you to see grace as an excuse for your permissiveness, you know, people want to continue in their sin, right? I can't help this. I had somebody tell me one time they couldn't help uh, getting angry and losing their temper. I thought, hmm, okay. You can in the strength of the Holy Spirit, but you have to be yielded to him. If he can get you to see grace as an excuse for your permissiveness, he will start you down a path to bondage, and you will never feel that freedom in Christ. Soon you'll be doing things you never could have conceived that you would be doing, and Satan will have sold you the lie, it's okay for you to indulge your lust. And you and I need to think of things like our anger, our pride, our jealousy, our roots of bitterness. That's what he works on us with. And he will tell you the lie. The lie. It's okay that you feel that way. Not if you're under the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's something you confess, ask him to clean, and help you to overcome that. And he will. Now, Charles Stanley... Here's some of his notes from a sermon he did on God's grace. Grace is not God's sanction that you plan and then excuse your personal indulgence. I'm just going to tell them what I think. You plan it, but I know God will forgive me. You know, that's what he's talking about. That is not how God's grace is supposed to operate. You don't plan that you're going to go do something that's wrong and then expect God, well, it's God's grace, he'll cover it. Paul writes to some who took God's grace in the same unwarranted direction as what Charles Stanley just said. He said, they start with this glorious truth. It's in Romans 5.20. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. 
Now, isn't that a glorious truth that's great for you and me? No matter how atrocious the extent of my sin, the grace of God unto forgiveness and transformation is far greater. That is a great statement that we say, praise God for that. However, they promote the idea, oh, just continue in your sin, and it presents a further opportunity for God's grace to abound more. See how they twist and they pervert it. How heinous is this licentious thought that me indulging more in sin would be a good thing because then God's grace could abound more. Notice the word licentious. Go back to the book of Jude. I think about verse 4. And he said the men crept in unawares and they're turning the grace of God into licentiousness. That's a licentious thought that a false teacher would be teaching. He says, grace is God's mean of forgiving my sins. Are we justified? Yes, totally, by his grace, faith alone, uh, in Christ alone. That's where my salvation, my justification comes from. Am I now clothed with his righteousness? Yes. Now, as well as, will his grace transform me into the image of Jesus Christ? Is he my sanctifier? Yes, but Satan will get many people off on a road. You're responsible to be sanctified. No, it's him doing the work in me. What's my part? I surrender to him, ask the Holy Spirit to take control of me. I get in his word because this is what washes over me and the power of the Holy Spirit with me surrendered and being in the word, that transforms me and sanctifies me. He will sanctify me. I cannot sanctify myself. No matter how hard I try, even when I was following a bunch of rules and regulations, you're not going to become sanctified. Charles Stanley says, here's the truth. Anticipated grace, it's never an excuse for you to plan to sin. Never. So, the evil fruit of Nicholas's doctrine encouraged worldly participation, leading people to indulge in sin and a lowered godly standard. In this way, he literally conquered the people. Now, that's an interesting phrase because that's going to take me to theory two. Who are the Nicolaitans and what are their deeds? The word Nicolaitan is derived from two Greek words. When you put them together, nikos means I'm going to conquer or subdue. Laos, the people. Okay, there's a group of Nicolaitans that want to be the religious elite. They want to conquer the people. That's where we get the word laity. It was not like this in the New Testament days. Now, when these two words are compounded into one, they form the word Nicholas, which literally means one who will conquer and subdue the people, get the people under their thumb. What was happening at this time? We divide it into the clergy and the laity. Many commentators believe the Nicolaitans established a religious system, and now we've got some religious elite. And they are going to rule over or lord over those of us who are the lesser rank. So this is what was happening at the time of Pergamos.
So we had these people rising up, and they are the clergy and the laity, and they divided people into those two classes. And I want to tell you, this is a false division that was never taught in the New Testament. You did not have this. Now, all of the body is truly under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's the head of the church. But this leadership elevated themselves above everyone else. And you're going to see this happening as we get into Pergamos and then on to the church of Thyatira. They said the body was independent of the soul. So this way, according to them, I can just commit sin all I want in my body, but it's not going to harm my soul. And yeah, it does. Now, this practice allowed a departure from the teaching of the Word of God. And they developed a method. And what was the key? We want to enslave the laity and corrupt them. We're going to put all kinds of religious rituals on them. We're going to put the traditions of men and idolatry on the people. And they became the religious elite, conquering the people by bringing them under Satan's authority through influential teachers. We're tolerating or promoting this evil or license to sin. Why was he so angry with the church at Pergamos? It's in your church, and you're allowing it. So we have gone from the church at Smyrna They were murdering the Christians, right? But martyrdom tends to purify the church and grow it. And now in Pergamos, we're in a mixture. We've married the world, and we've married all the paganism stuff, and now we're going to have a breakdown into biblical separation, into worldliness, and it is going to putrefy the church. And Jesus is going to hate it, and it's going to stink in his nostrils. Prophetically speaking, this happened during these centuries of the church at Pergamos. It eventually evolved to the point where these men were separating themselves, and now we have a group of men called the bishops. We have a group of men called the priests. They began pronouncing absolution over the people of God. They were the ones who could forgive the sin. They started forgiving people's sins. They started saying, you need to come confess to us. Sending people to heaven, damning people to hell, bringing in the indulgences. And we're going to see all of that even worsen as we go into the church of Thyatira. So the members were compelled and they began to be forced to submit to this arbitrary dominion of men who have become that thing which God says, I hate it. And these men gained a triumphal victory, conquest over the people sitting in the pew. Let's see what Peter has to say about this. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, And Peter said, I witnessed the sufferings of Jesus Christ, and I am a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. And here's what he tells them. You are to shepherd the flock of God. You're not supposed to lord over them. You shepherd them. He goes on to say, feed the flock of God that's among you, 
take the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but you do it willingly. And you don't do it for money. You do it of a ready mind and listen to Peter's words. Not as being a Lord over those who God's entrusted to you. They have a flock. Teachers have people that are considered like a flock. You're never to lord over them, he says. And you are to be an example. You're always to be the example of everything you teach and everything you preach, but you don't lord over your flock. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, I'm going to teach y'all a new word if you didn't know it. It is a form of antinomianism. Yeah, there's a word for you. Yes. Anti means against, and nomos means law. So this is a form of things that come against the law of God. Theologically, it's the belief. You know, there are no moral laws that God expects you and I to obey. Antinomianism takes a biblical teaching, but then they get an unbiblical conclusion out here. We have an example. Here's a biblical teaching. Christians are not required to observe the Old Testament law as a means of salvation. Is that true? Yes. I'm not getting many yeses. Okay. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, did he fulfill the Old Testament law? Yes. So now here's their unbiblical conclusion of that truth that we just read. Therefore, there is no moral law that God expects you to obey as a Christian. That's antinomianism. Charles uh, Ryle says, the antinomians, they are people, they boast, we've got a saving interest in Christ. They say they're pardoned and forgiven. But at the same time, they live in willful sin an open breach of God's commandments. He says, I dare say these people are miserably deceived. Miserably. So antinomianism, it's a belief based upon a recognition of the mercy of God as the ground of salvation. True. But it makes a fatal mistake. It takes a wrong turn that I can partake in sin because the law of the Old Testament is no longer binding in my life. It misapplies the meaning of God's gracious favor. It's supposed that a, a mere intellectual belief in this truth has a saving power. A lot of people believe and will say that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died. A lot of people will say it. It simply means they say you don't have to obey any laws of God. Oh, here we go again. A perversion of grace because you're under grace. So Stephen Black of First Stone Ministries, this is a quote from one of his articles. What is very alarming, this perversion of grace teaching is permeating the church at large. And it gives a segue to gay Christianity, which is an oxymoron. Many are embracing gay Christianity, and they call it a new revelation of grace, and they've gone back to damnable sinful behavior leading to destruction. That's exactly what Peter said. They're going to bring in things secretly, and it will lead to swift destruction. So there's a, 
uh, verse in 1 Corinthians. If you and I think we can stand, take heed. Beware, lest he fall. And I love this quote. If an apostolic deacon, Nicholas, if an apostolic deacon could turn apostate and become a mighty weapon in the hands of Satan for the destruction of the church, you and I need to be very careful. Very careful. Warren Wiersbe says, Any theology that makes sin easy and divine punishment unimportant, it's not biblical. Because God says his judgment begins with his own people. He tells the church in Revelation, he tells them to repent. It strongly contradicts the idea that Christians never need to repent. You hear people that say, he's forgiven me my sins, I don't need to repent anymore. No, we need to constantly be turning from sin. We need to constantly confess our sins to keep our vessel clean. Revelation 2, 4, and 5. I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence you're fallen and repent and do your first works, or else I'm going to come to you quickly and remove your candlestick out of its place unless you repent. In five of the seven churches, Jesus says, and he demands repentance. He tells them what's wrong, and he says, repent. Far from believers being unaccountable for our sin, we are going to answer to Jesus Christ for our disobedience. Paul tells us, and he's very clear in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And ladies, I urge you, keep this in your mind. Keep it in your focus. You and I are going to stand before him and give an account of our lives for everything. So the root of this compromise, it's a lack of belief in Jesus Christ and who he proclaimed to be. Because you would not be compromising if you truly believe this word. You wouldn't be compromising if you truly believe who Jesus Christ is and who he claims to be. We compromise when we have no idea. I am forfeiting an eternal treasure. Because I'm standing here, I want to be liked, I want to be approved, so I compromise the word of God. And I will lose a whole lot. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what he has planned for us. And I don't know exactly what it's all about, but I don't want to lose it. Because it will be phenomenal, something that I can't even imagine yet. Religious deception. This is the spirit of Nimrod that came from Babylon. And remember when, it was, when the Persians defeated Babylon? All that Babylonian religion picked up and where did it move to? Pergamos where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Religious deception is alive and well. It's thriving in this end-time generation. That antinomian spirit, an attitude of lawlessness, allows sin to infest the church. It's okay if you stand and you lie and you cover up and you do all kinds of things that are against God's word because God's grace will cover it. That's that spirit. So Jesus, Paul, Peter, Jude, and John all warn us 
against the encroachment of the antinomianism or lawlessness. And they tell us how to spot a false prophet. My biggest offense is that I know this word. You have to be intimately familiar with this word. Diligent study. So that when when you hear something that doesn't jive with this, your radar goes up. It goes up immediately, and you recognize when something is not truth. The spirit of Nimrod, it says millions of people go through the motions of worship every week. But then they go out and they maintain a heart completely out of touch with God. You and I can meticulously avoid all overt acts of worldliness, as we might define them. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do all these things. Okay. But you can still have a heart full of hypocrisy. You can still have a heart full of criticism and and being judgmental and jealousy and bitterness. And you can be preoccupied with the details of this life when I am told not to be. Instead of focusing on my eternal treasure and focusing on what is eternal. He says you need to repent or I'm going to come quickly and I'm going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth If it's in our churches, we are not to tolerate it. You may be standing over here in a corner with two or three people, but if it comes into the church, we are not to tolerate the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He says in 1 Corinthians, Don't you know that just a little yeast leavens the whole dough? He says, clear out that old yeast so that you may become a fresh batch of dough. You will never suppress error by compromising with it. You're not going to get the the error taken away. You're not going to deal with it because you compromise with it. The error, it will fester. It grows. There is no room for compromise in your life or in the church that you attend. No compromise. So the sword of judgment's poised over their heads. His patience is not limitless. And he says to them, you sort it out or I'm going to come sort it out myself. That's a quote from some commentator. So the sun was approached one day by the moon. The moon was in eclipse. And the moon asked the sun, why don't you shine on me the way you used to? And the sun said, I'm shining like I always do. What's the problem? The world has come between us. The world has come between us. So what is biblical grace? It's the Holy Spirit living in me. Does he empower you to live a godly life? Yeah, if he has control of you. He will empower you to live, an un- to live a godly life and deny ungodliness. Hebrews 12 says, We are receiving a kingdom which can never be moved. So let us have grace whereby we can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Notice this biblical grace. He ties that grace with reverence. We have a concept of God. It includes I stand in awe of him and who he is, the respect that I have for him. First Peter says, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. For the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This time, he connects grace with sober reverence. Produces true gladness in my heart. 
So what are the traits of a biblical grace if it's in my life, in the life of a believer? I'm anticipating and longing for the coming of the Lord. Not just because I want out of here. We better be looking and anticipating for the right reason. It's a godly fear. It's a holy reverence for the Lord himself. These two fruits in my life, they are grace's work. They're inseparable, and I can't possess one without the other. It says in Titus 2.11, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to how many men? All. All men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, I am to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, and I'm to be looking for my blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is biblical grace in your life. So even with his strong warning that I don't pervert the grace of God, Jude ends with two marvelous verses that the church I grew up in, we said this every Sunday at the end of the service. This is our only hope for the road ahead is God's grace. He says, your God's able. He's able. Is he able? He is able. He says, now unto him, he is able to keep you and me from falling, from stumbling. And he will present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. Amen. Now I want you to look here. I'm back to this illustration. Are you a new creation in Christ? Yes, we are. Are you seeking, are you desiring to yield to him so you have the abundant life lived in you? To be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Do not remain at Acacia Grove because if you do the enemy is going to lay a trap for you you've got to cross the Jordan in absolute surrender to him and what does that look like back to the potter's wheel here's my new life if I want the abundant life the potter's wheel is right there for me to yield to him to ask him to just come in and take control of me, give me victory, and live that abundant life in me. And here is my posture before him all the time. I'm always yielded to him, surrendered to him on that potter's wheel. And when I am, the new life that's in me will be lived as a reality in me. And we have victory. And it's all because of him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the truth of